We are continuing our Advent series on the New Testament readings, and so our text this morning is James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, the New Testament reading. It's a text about patience, and patience is a foundational, crucial virtue in the Christian life. Its absence is a spiritual sickness. And it, it portrays a profound kind of unbelief. And as this text will show, it is, among other things, an unbelief in the future advent, in the future coming of the Lord, in patiences. So, we'll look at the text under three headings, patience, speech, and the example. Patience, speech, and the example. So the text, the text here from James 5 starts in verse 7 with a, a simple but demanding command. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the Lord's coming. These are people who, in the context of the book of James, are suffering oppression and injustice at the hands of the rich and the powerful. After all, patience is hardly needed when things are going swimmingly or well. So they get this command from James, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the Lord's coming. So let's start by asking what we sort of already know, but we sort of struggle to put into words. And that is, what is patience? What is it? There's a number of ways one might come at this, but I think it is basically the virtue of seeing what the book of Ecclesiastes teaches over and over and over again. Namely, that we are not in control of our lives. This is a difficult thing for us to learn because we live in a control-freak management culture. But Ecclesiastes says your life is a mist. It's a vapor. It's ungraspable. You can't chaperone it or shepherd it or direct it. We're not in control of our lives. I mean, we think we are. We're under this profound delusion that we're managing everything well. But even if we grant that there's a realm that we control, it's a very small realm and it's not the most basic realm. As we sit here this morning, each of us have millions of things going on involuntarily in our bodies that are keeping us alive, over which we have absolutely no control. The sphere of what people can control is much less than people think. They don't control their birth, they don't control their death, they don't control their language, they don't control their century, they don't control their parents, they don't control their their genetic endowment, they don't control their gifts. They don't control the very next breath, yet somehow we're obsessed with controlling stuff. So patience is the virtue of seeing, first and foremost, we do not, in fact, control our lives or the lives of others. We want to be in the FAA control tower of life, where we can see and manage everything. But we're just strapped into the plane. You put your seatbelt on, you sit in the plane. And so patience then, 
is about allowing things to run their course in God's good time. And that means patience makes space. Space for the sovereign spirit. And it allows us to make space for ourselves and space for other people. It enables us to let people and things take the time that they need. Not the time we think they might need, the time they need. This is difficult, again, because of the time management emphasis. You know, the first thing to learn about time management is this. You're not managing time. It's managing you. It's amazing how you never get that in a time management efficiency seminar. We're all being managed by time. But you know what? Immortal people... Immortals, they're not in a hurry. Patience is tied to our mortality. Our impatience, I mean, is tied to this in the fallen state of the world and refusing to accept it. So as such, patience then allows us to go through life without railing against constraints or obstacles, or frustrations, no matter what their source. Patience then is an acceptance, a profound acceptance of limitations. Limitationville, that's the town we all live in. We're limited ourselves. Other people limit us. God's purposes limit us. This whole fallen age, which we looked at a couple, couple of weeks ago, limits us. And so, life is like a vapor. It's like a mist, and we're constantly trying to shepherd it and grasp it and haul it in. And we get upset. And so, patience is about waiting. And we moderns generally don't wait well. Right? We get stuck in traffic for three extra minutes that we didn't have planned on our schedule and we fly off the handle. But, but waiting is not one virtue among mother, others in the Christian life. I want you to see this. The idea of waiting, waiting, is deeply basic to Christianity. I love this text of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says this. He says, We have turned... From idols to the living God, to serve the living God, in order to wait for his Son from heaven, who delivers us from the wrath which is to come. Notice, you are saved into a perpetual state of waiting, waiting for the final appearance, waiting for the advent of the Son of God. And this is precisely what we see in the text. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until... Not until the situation is resolved to your liking. Until the coming of the Lord. This is a question we should ask ourselves. What are we most fundamentally waiting for? Paul says you were saved to wait for Jesus' appearance from heaven. 
Now, I haven't mentioned this coming of the Lord a few times. Perhaps a few too many times to some. But it's basic. Do you, do you realize that the coming of the Lord, the second advent of Jesus, is either directly mentioned or alluded to 300 times in the New Testament? That's once every 13 verses of the whole New Testament. It's a kind of fundamental orientation. So, this is of immense practical consequence. Patient people, James is saying, patient people live as if they actually believe that the Lord who has come will come again. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. They believe, then, that He's going to right all the wrongs and sort out all our tangles and tie up all our loose ends, consummate all the unfinished movements of our lives, that He's going to judge with equity and righteousness, that He's going to heal and restore the created order. And it turns out that this is immensely practical because it then means that we don't have to manipulate and fret and rush. We don't have to treat our schedules and our priorities as if they were divine. We don't have to bend people and bend situations into the form which we would like them to take. We don't have to fix everything. Not now, not tomorrow, not next year, not even in this age. It's very liberating. You don't have to fix the other person. You're barely going to be able to make some progress fixing yourself. And so patience then means freedom. Like this is not a teeth gritting sort of virtue. It means liberation, freedom to wait, freedom to let things and people be. Now, this is not some, you know, Eastern, hey, Sarah, Sarah sort of freedom, right? Sort of, hey, you know, uh, just let it be sort of thing. That's not what we're talking about. This is not compliance or surrender. It's a knowledge that there's an end which has appeared in Jesus and shall come again and clean things up. So, that's patience. The opposite, of course, is impatience. And that arises, as I said, when we can't control. We can't remove the frustrations in our lives. And we insist on keeping at it, trying to remove them. And so we refuse to be hemmed in by limitations or the station or the situation we're in. And what happens next? We get angry. Impatience leads to anger. And the anger is directed at what constrains us, what limits us, what inhibits us. And so patience liberates us from anger. Anger eats us up. We're the guest at the banquet of anger, not the person we're angry at. And another, another form here of failing to wait patiently besides impatience, and I mentioned this already, is, is resignation. 
We simply give up. You know, there are people who appear to be patient, but they're just too passive. So that we gradually lay aside spiritual discipline. We refuse to live awake, alert, attentive lives. And there's a kind of apathy, a kind of indifference. Sure, I accept all my limitations. That's not what James has in view by patience. So both impatience and resignation, they're a profound failure to believe in the end, in the coming of the Lord. See, this is the the thing that's provocative and I think surprising if we hear with fresh ears this text in James. In other words, when have you ever seen impatience in your own heart or perhaps in the heart of of a friend or someone or another person and said, this is an eschatological problem. I am not believing in the end. They are not believing in the end. We don't think this way. James says you're impatient because you don't really believe that Jesus is going to come and sort the stuff out. It's a sickness, impatience. And it, it happens to us because we are believing lies. The fundamental lie here, the fundamental lies are always the big lies that we're the blindest to. The fundamental lie here is that we should be in control, that our lives should be the way we planned, the way we dreamed, that people should fit into the boxes that we've drawn for them, and that we should be able to get all this stuff together. And we have ideals which are sentimental and romantic. And the ideal, we fall short of the ideals, and we're frustrated. We believe lies, and we get sick in our souls. But James says, be patient. So all of this lively expectation of the end, all of this looking and praying for the end, does not mean we're frantic. It it doesn't mean we're in a state of perpetual churn or discontent. We're called to wait patiently. It's active to be sure, but it's a waiting which respects, it's a waiting which participates in, and which honors the rhythms and the patterns of, of, and the orders of life. Even nature, you can see that in the example James gives in the middle of verse 7. He says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. And how patient he is for the autumn or the spring rains. I mean, farmers work in a, a vocation which generally creates patient people. Their calling demands it. And a good deal of our impatience is that we're alienated from the land. And thus we're alienated from the rhythms and the order of creation. But if we would attend to them, they would remind us of our limitations and of our finitude. And so the farmer, James brings the farmer out and says, look at his waiting. It's a kind of holy submission on the timing of God. The appointed seasons for sowing and reaping. I mean, the farmers reminded all the time that the very bread which sustains our existence lies beyond our ability to manufacture. So we're, we're impatient all day. We're running around. We're eating. We go through the drive-thru. We eat this. We drink that. Right? We realize day, the whole day's gone by. We've never given thanks to God for anything because we're in a hurry. 
We just assume that food is a given. The farmer thinks food is a reminder that I don't have the control that I think I have. I can't even keep myself alive. And so the farmer waits, the text says, for the precious fruit of the earth. He sees this harvest, this yearly wonder of bounty. And he's reminded, this is a parable of the final harvest, which will be unveiled at the coming of the Lord. He's connected to things in a way that we're not because we're on our iPad all day. He's attuned. He learns the art of waiting. He's patient also about his human labor, his planting, the text says, until it receives, again, what he can't supply. Namely, the the early and the late rains, the autumn and the spring rains. It's not just that he can't produce the food, he can't supply the things necessary to produce the food. I mean, imagine having a job where you can't supply the basic things needed to be successful in the job. The farmer has that kind of job. You know what? Turns out everyone has that kind of job. It's just that we we blind ourselves. This is part of the delusion. Everyone's got this kind of job. He can do nothing to speed up the relation between seed and crop. So he waits. He's not caught up in some corporate frenzied culture which insists that he does things faster than he did them last year. And so he's a model to imitate. Verse 8, you too, be patient. You too, be patient. Stand firm, for the Lord's coming is near. Stand firm. Same word used of Jesus when he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It means to settle. Stand firm here means to be calm. To root your frame of mind. Here's a blessed thing. Patience leads to stability. Impatience is turbulence. Patience is stability, peace, rootedness. And it's done in light of the fact that the coming of the Lord, the text says, is near. It's at hand. Now again, again, this has to be grasped. This is not chronological nearness necessarily. If Jesus does not return for 795 billion years, his coming is still at hand. It is still near because it has already arrived in Advent. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago, about understanding the time. And if we believe that the coming of the Lord is at hand... That does a few things. At first, it's disturbing, and it unnerves us, and that may be good and necessary, but it then moves us to stability. Right? Think of the ability to focus your mind that some serious tragedy or some great test or trial has. Well, we live under the end which has appeared, the judgment which is to come permanently. And so that has the effect of moving us to resoluteness, establishing our hearts, 
Because established hearts, the text says, are patient hearts. And you have this patient heart ordered to the end. And then you can live with a great deal of unfulfilled desire. And a fair measure of frustration. We can give people and things space because we trust that in all these things and over all them stands the coming Lord. So that's patience. The second thing I want to say a few words about is speech. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. It turns out that impatience is manifest most openly in our speech. Impatient people are grumblers. Right? You, 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 never, you rarely find an impatient person who's really, really quiet. And impatient people grumble never against themselves. They're never the source of the limitations. It's usually almost always against others. And this, too, is a sickness that afflicts probably almost all of us. Impatient people often excuse what they say as ruthless truth-telling. I'm just telling the truth. That person is too slow. They fumble. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're ignorant. They're blind. They're short-sighted. They're hard to deal with. Blah, blah, blah. Right? I'm just being a truth-teller. I can't help it if other people don't want to be brutally honest like myself. But it is, in fact a kind of impatience that sees other people as obstacles. It's a discipline, that we, a sickness that we fall into, and we have to discipline ourselves to unlearn impatience. And it's an idolatrous manifestation of impatience at that. James says we should not do it. We should not grumble, he says, so that you won't be judged. For, the text says, the judge is standing at the door. This is James going just a little deeper here. Grumbling against others, he says, is a form of judgment against them. And so, to get to the heart of it, he says, it's a, it's a, a wicked assuming to ourselves of the prerogatives of the judge the one whose coming is at hand, the one who is standing at the door. It turns out that grumbling people do not really concretely believe in the coming judgment. They don't. And so they cannot wait patiently for God to judge. And so they are going to play the role of judge right now. Turns out that grumbling is an eschatological error. <laughs> it is. It is. Grumbling means I've got to assume the role of the sorter out of this person. Isn't it interesting how James connects grumbling to this? The op- love you know, opposed to grumbling is patient, right? Paul tells us love is patient. God is love. Love is patient. And that's the crucial social virtue. This is what this kind of patience lubricates, makes possible the fellowship of the people of God. It makes marriages possible and communities possible and work environments possible. And so Advent faith then means the cessation of grumbling. 
For if we have this hope that the Lord is at hand and that we're going to stand before the judge at the door, we will establish our hearts, James says. Purify ourselves and our speech even as the coming one is pure. And the third point's the example. There's an example set forth, verse 10. An example of the, uh, those who endured through suffering and, and patience. Uh, the text says, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So here we see something a little bit new. Patience and suffering are linked. There should be no delusions about this. Patience and suffering. And it's not simply that we're to be patient in suffering, though that is true. But James's point here is that patience is a kind of suffering. It doesn't just drop down into your lap. Now, it is true that some people are born with a, patient, uh, with a personality and a natural set of gifts that maybe endow them with a little better, better head start on patience than some of the others of us. But nonetheless, patience is a form of suffering. And so a patient person recognizes that he is, if you will, a patient. You see, there's a link between patience and being, in the medical sense of the word, a patient. So, so the, the patient person knows he is on the table of God's good providence. He suffers. He submits, or she submits, and undergoes with good cheer what they can in no way escape. Isn't it a funny thing about impatience? Probably 90% of our impatience is over things which we can in no way escape, about which we can do nothing. Impatience only prolongs the work of the divine surgeon. It makes it harder. So James says, look at the prophets. They suffered patiently. They were waiting for the word of the Lord, which they saw from a distance. Again, they were oriented toward the future. Notice that. That word has now become flesh. And we, looking to the prophet's example, look forward to its future coming. So patience is instilled by the word of the Lord, the coming God of the future for the prophets, as it is for us. Verse 11, we consider blessed those who have remained steadfast. Not only is is patience oriented toward the future, it's the virtue in light of that future which keeps steadfastness alive. No patience, no endurance. No patience, no perseverance. No patience, no standing firm. Notice another connection here in the text. We consider those, James says, blessed who have persevered. Blessed means happy. And so patience leads to and is the key to happiness. It is impossible to be happy if you're impatient and grumbling. Just impossible. Patience removes, then, this evil restlessness that leaves us constantly frustrated and discontent. It's the freedom to live happily in light of the coming Lord, who, in spite of all appearances, does all things well. And then we're reminded of Job. Notice that in the middle of verse 12. He remains steadfast. 
There were numerous lapses, to be sure, but overall, Job remained steadfast. And we can see the text says what God accomplished or what God brought about. Or we can see in Job, in some translations, the purpose of the Lord. This is key. Patient people are trusting that purpose, that end of the Lord's ways and works. And Job's a fitting example here because, like him, we often feel that there's no purposeful hand in the events that shape our lives. We can't sort these things out. Human life is incomprehensible to us. Why something happens or doesn't happen to this person or that person at that time in that way, this is inscrutable stuff. You will drive yourself crazy if you try to figure out what God is doing in every providential little thing that happens to you or your loved ones. Crazy. That is an attempt to be in the FAA control tower of life and you're just on the plane. I often tell people, do not try to read providence over much. We know certain things to be sure. We, we know this. We know God is trying to gather his people. He's trying to conform you into the image of Christ. He's trying to make you holy. He's trying to bring forth his image in you. But what he's doing between this situation and that situation and that situation, no one knows. We pretend we know. We think we know. But we have virtually no data about these things. Like we know we have three data points. We're missing 57 trillion data points. And we draw conclusions about what might be happening or what might not be happening. And so the simplest things cause us to feel as if the whole cosmos is careening out of control. And our steadfastness easily unravels. But Job trusted in the Lord's purpose. So it's important to get this. The end means your life has a shape. It has a goal. It has, it has purpose. And James reminds us that the end of Job's ordeal shows us the Lord's sovereign goodness. He uses two very emotional words here. In him we see the Lord is full of compassion. We see this in Job's life. Meaning he's a God of much tender feeling and mercy. He's full of pity. I mean, think of Job's life. Behind, behind a frowning providence, right? behind all that is done to us and all that befalls us and all that irritates and provokes us to impatience is the purpose of this God. You know, we have begun to make some progress when we see the things and people in life which, which provoke us to impatience as instruments of God's kindness and mercy to purify and transform us. So that we're talking to God more about ourselves than grumbling about the other person. This is not to reduce other people just to instruments of your sanctification. That's not what I mean. But you've turned a corner on sanctification when you realize all the, it's especially the things that are aggravating us, that are blocking us, that are derailing and frustrating. It's especially those places where God is trying to get at us. And we think, 
We think, I just I have to get past this so that I can deal with God once I get this stuff under control. And so, uh, these are divine appointments, if you will. To be, to be confronted with another person is to, is to face the image of God. And, and, jo, and James says here, the God who's presiding over this is full of tenderness and pity. And he's moved by our plight. Now, the example of Job can admittedly be kind of a daunting example. Um, but it does remind us of something we've said, uh, alluded to, but not really addressed. And, and that's namely that patience, the Advent patience this text calls us to, this is not a natural attainment. Like the hope we looked at last week, this is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a, right? Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, and therefore we should cry out of our poverty and our impatience for that gift. For the Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. It is the Spirit of God which gives the farmer's seed life and growth and brings forth food from the face of the earth. So, in seeking and looking for the coming of the Lord, we're yearning and seeking to be filled with the Spirit. This is what Paul means when he says, for where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from control, freedom from grumbling, freedom to wait, freedom to act with resolute determination and calm, freedom to live with an established, stable, rooted frame. In short, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is patience. Patience bathed in the certainty of the advent light of the coming Lord. Amen.